0: Welcome to Stalwarts of Music with Aditya Veera, Season 2. This podcast is brought to you by Perpetual Buzz Experiences. They are an artist representation company with three very basic but lofty goals. They are the launchpad for many musicians, helping them leverage success in the best possible manner. They also help fund social causes and provide some of the most memorable experiences. For music lovers. Speaking of my guest today, he's substantively and significantly impacted the contours of music. His vision and mastery has made him a legendary global bass player and music composer. I'm talking about the one and only John Patitucci. He's been honored with multiple Grammy Awards for his extraordinary contributions in the world of music. His passion for teaching and nurturing the next generation of musicians has solidified his reputation as a very reputed music educator. As a composer, he has composed and arranged a vast repertoire of original music, showcasing his compositional prowess and versatility. His mastery of the bass has led to collaborations with some of the greatest musicians of all time that includes the likes of Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, and Wayne Shorter to name a few. His ability to seamlessly blend intricate melodic lines with complex harmonies has made him an in-demand musician sought after by several many musicians throughout the world. My special guest today is none other than Sheldon De Silva. Sheldon, is a very passionate and accomplished bass player from India. He embarked on his musical journey at the age of 12. Inspired by renowned bassists, he aims to redefine the role of bass players and explore many genres throughout the realm. With a lot of experience and collaborations with legends like Louis Banks, he's left his mark on global stages, festivals, and even Bollywood soundtracks. His proficiency, dedication, and international recognition as a D, Adario, and Dorsey solidifies his position as a remarkable musician. So without any further ado, I'm delighted to welcome my guest for today, John Patitucci, and my special guest, Sheldon De Silva, who will be joining us for a very special segment. Stay tuned, as they will be joining us very shortly.
1: Hi, this is John Patitucci, and you're listening to Stalwarts of Music with Adicha Vida.
0: Hi, John. How are you? And which part of the world are you in?
1: Uh, I live uh, near New York, uh, uh-huh. ne- not far from the city.
0: Okay, okay. So w- what's happening? What's happening uh, musically for you? What are you up to? Uh, it-
1: a lot. Um, yesterday was my first day off in a while. <laughs> um, oh, wow. I've been playing a lot. Uh, I do a lot of recording too. I play on people's records uh, in New York and sometimes other places when they fly me to LA or something. Okay. Um, I also play on films, uh, and I also scored my first film during the pandemic. So I'm trying to get into doing some more of those as well. And um, I've been, to that end, I've been also composing a lot and putting together these uh, these little ten song catalogs for YouTube for oh, wow. film creators. Put some stuff out there. That's the the first one's going to be released pretty soon, and I'm always writing, mm-hmm. orchestrating, writing different things. Uh, I just played a week in New York City at the Blue Note. No, not at the Blue Note, I'm sorry. I played last week at, the, at uh, Birdland in okay. the city, okay. And I played with um, uh, the first two nights were a trio with uh, Brian Blade and Russell Ferrante on piano,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the, the last three were. Joe Lovano on saxophone and Brian Blade. we did stuff from my record Remembrance. And we had a great time. It was for the Pepperoncino Jazz Festival in New York. I have a really good friend from Calabria in Italy who good. does a festival every year, 65 concerts down in Calabria. So he, this is the second time he's come to do a New York edition. Okay, so a lot of stuff. I'm very busy with my church too. I was doing a, a gospel music kind of session yesterday uh, there. Um, there's a lot. And I also teach at Berkeley College of Music, although I'm off for the summer.
0: Is yeah. there something is there something that you do not do at this point? <laughs> Sleep. <laughs> incredible. <laughs> no, incredible. Yeah.
1: I'm really yeah. thankful and I'm grateful at my age to still be, you know, as busy as I am. I'm getting ready to go out on the road in July with Danila Perez, my dear brother. And uh in this 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 particular tour, it's Adam Cruz on the drive
0: going
1: to Europe.
2: Yeah
0: i think your july calendar is completely packed
1: yeah it's pretty so, nutty
2: yeah <laughs> great, great,
0: great. <laughs> great incredible so we'll get started with the agenda that i have for today i have a couple of very interesting questions coming your way let we get started absolutely all right so throughout your personal journey as a musician uh, you have you you started out you started out somewhere i'm sure I've gathered that you grew up for a while in Brooklyn, and yes. you were a first-generation bass player to create the musical heritage in your family as a first-generation musician. So how did yes. your earliest musical memory contribute to your understanding of rhythm, melody, and harmony? And how did you go about laying that foundation for your future exploration and experimentation with these elements that I mentioned about?
1: Yeah that's a great question. Um first of all what happened was on my father's side his father came over on a boat when he was 16 from southern Italy. They were very poor. He was from Calabria. Okay. The other side of the family on my mother's side came from the Naples area but they came in the late 1800s. They were the they were an earlier exodus again because of poverty. Um the grandfather who was born in in Brooklyn from the Neapolitan side Mm-hmm. Had a had an aunt who was Neapolitan. So he was the best chef in the family. He taught me okay. how to make ravioli and all that. He also yeah. had a love of music. He loved music. He could play a little piano by ear. He was sort of a, a renaissance man with no education. Oh, okay. He could make dresses. He worked on, you know, with his hand, uh, you know, with a jackhammer or fixing roads, a manual laborer. But he also had a good ear. Yeah. He could cook better than anybody. And he made dresses. He was just multi-talented. so he he got the music started in our family by buying my brother. My older brother was my first teacher, and he's my hero. He's three years older than me. He's also oh, yeah. uh, has been a pastor for many years and incredible person. Um, he and his wife are amazing. They have, you know, three children, five grandchildren. But he's a, he's very inspirational to me. And he was the one who put the bass in my hands. What happened was my grandfather got him a guitar. He started playing. And I wanted to be like him. And I started trying to play the guitar. But I'm left-handed and I play righty. Yeah. And the pick was impossible for me. I just couldn't deal with it. So I quit right away. I think at eight, I tried to play the guitar. I had some bongos. I had played a lot of percussion. I was hitting on things. I wanted to play the drums too. But my dad wouldn't let me. We lived in a House with my uncle's family on one floor and our family on the other floor, so that wasn't going to happen. No drums. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I got into my brother put an electric bass in my hands. We got one. It was about ten bucks. It was a horrible Sears Telstar bass. Sears was a big you know chain of department store in the America, and this is all in the nineteen sixties. I was born in fifty nine, so about nineteen sixty nine I started playing the electric bass. And I heard on the radio, these, these are the things that really changed my life. First of all, I heard two Stevie Wonder songs. Uh, I was made to love her and for once in my life. I heard James Jameson play. Didn't know his name because he never got credit yeah. until later. Yeah. That blew my mind. I heard that and I was like, wow. You know, and then I heard the Beatles and I heard a lot of soul music, a lot of Motown music. And then later on in the 70s, the sound of Philadelphia. Spinners and the OJs and all that too, but I heard Stevie and and a little little after uh, Donny Hathaway and all these things with all these great bass players. The first electric bass players that really influenced me heavily were James Emerson. I would say Willie Weeks, Gerald Jamot, Chuck Rainey, and that that was the first thing. And then I heard McCartney playing with the Beatles. He was amazing. We also heard the Who. All these things were new. The Rolling Stones. The it was all this stuff. And we got really into the blues. B.B. King uh, was a huge favorite in our house because my brother's a guitarist. Then um, what happened was the same grandfather who bought the guitar from my brother brought home a box of records one day. And in that box of records was Art Blake and the Jazz Messengers with Wayne Shorter on it. Um, West Montgomery records with a rhythm section on a lot of them was Herbie Hancock, Grady Tate on drums, and Ron Carter. And I heard then there was some. Uh, there was a Thelonious Monk record in there. There were there was one Oscar Peterson record that had Ray Brown and Ed Thigpen on one side, and on the other side was like maybe it was Sam Jones and Louis Hayes or something like some incredible records. Jimmy yeah. Smith organ. So I heard all this. We heard all this jazz music. I must have been around ten, maybe mm-hmm. even eight. When I heard those records, my brother and I were blown away. We couldn't understand anything, but we felt it. Especially Wes Montgomery's music was bluesy and it kind of pulled us in. Um, And the Art Blakey record really touched me too. It was interesting how Wayne's sound and his writing already grabbed me when I was a little boy. I didn't know who he was yet, but I sure found out later. He came like a second father to me. Anyway, so... That's how it all kind of began in, in East Flatbush in Brooklyn. Interesting. In the uh,
0: right, right. Uh, interesting you men- mentioned Wayne Shorter. Uh, his, his compositions are known for their open-endedness and room for interpretation. Right? So how did this aspect of his music challenge and expand your own understanding of improvisation, freedom, and self-expression?
1: Well... It was kind of osmotic really, because I didn't understand anything that was going on. It just touched me emotionally. But that, the way jazz musicians and blues musicians were improvising, what I did understand at a a certain level, very young is the way they, they spoke through the music. They were telling stories. They weren't just playing a bunch of stuff. They were really, Their art of improvisation was so developed, they they really had a way of expressing uh, deeply Mm -hmm. who they were and their emotional uh, feelings and also the soul of what they had to offer, the expression of their life. Uh, And they also were brilliant musically, so they knew how to pace that delivery of an improvisation. And I didn't even know... Now I've been teaching for years, so I understand what it means, what they were doing. But at first, it was purely emotional. I didn't read music at all. I was playing by ear. God gave me an ear, so I just used to pick things up off the radio or the records. And I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, And then we moved out to the West Coast. I was about 13. And I met a man named Chris Poehler. He pronounces it paler. But it's the same as it's Mm P-O-E-H-L-E-R. He became my mentor. He's still... A mentor to me. Uh, just turned seventy-nine. Oh, wow. I'm going to be sixty-four in December. So <laughs> that's hard. Like, to, you, know, you
0: don't look like you're sixty-four at all. Thank you, of sir. The stuff that you've been doing.
1: <laughs> I feel like um, the years have flown by. You know, my my wife and I now have grown-up daughters who are in their twenties. Okay. Know. Okay. Two of them. It's like wow, how did that happen? Anyway, so that's sort of what was going on. Then we moved to California, 1972. Yeah. And um, what happened there was I met this man, Chris Poehler, and then all of a sudden I was in situations in a school where they had a music program. In Brooklyn, uh, when I was very young, we went to Catholic school. There was no music program. There was one lady, Miss Petralia, sitting at a piano playing. This is interesting, though. This already was giving me a global perspective in a very primitive way. She had a book of that we sang out of, and it was songs from all around the world. So, uh, as even in brooklyn and Bro- brooklyn was always more of a melting pot in a in a multicultural society than if i had grown up in the midwest or something like that not to put down the midwest but i yeah. think the mid brooklyn was kind of amazing in that r- regard so that seed was planted which later on would be a very important seed in my life uh the rhythmic exploration of everything that came from you know africa and all the music uh, whether it's africa the middle east you know india all the all the um arabic music i would find out later that i do have some arab blood also because of my southern italian roots you know and um i was just curious about things being a bass player too rhythmically you 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 hear all these this rhythmic information coming from all around the world and i think the the bass players that interest me the most are very fluid and interested in all of that. So the, all these seeds were planted pretty young. I had no idea what was going on. I was flying on in, in, into intellect, not intellect, but instinct, and what was given to me by God, I believe.
0: Marvelous. Uh, you did mention some very key aspects, uh, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the traditions, right? The classical and jazz traditions, uh, so to speak of, they have very rich histories and probably established conventions. Right? So how do you yes. balance honoring the tradition while still injecting your own personal voice and interpretation into the music? How do you go about something like that?
1: Well, that that leads me to the one thing I didn't say was when I was growing up in the house, um, uh, it was a very italian culture in that <laughs> so i heard opera mm-hmm. i also heard pop music so i was simultaneously sort of hearing all these different influences so for me be- becoming an eclectic musician was sort of natural okay but what happened was i was playing by ear a lot and then when i met chris poehler paler I was about 13, he started saying, you must learn how to read music. And I was, I don't wanna learn how to read music. <laughs> but he made me learn how to read music and thank God. Then <clears throat> as I was moving through high school, I was starting to get better at reading music. Halfway through, there was an acoustic bass in the band room because now I was in a school that had actual music program. Yeah. So I started playing in the orchestra too, just sort of self-taught. He, he sort of helped me hold the bow he was a good bass player, a really good bass player. He played with quite a lot of people in San Francisco during the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. He even played with West Montgomery. Oh, wow. And um, so, and a ton of other people Chet Baker and Earl Father Hines. All, he, he did a lot. He was also a great arranger, composer, orchestrator. So, he made me learn how to read music. And then I was going through high school and practicing like crazy on electric and acoustic now. And then he said, okay, now you're going to go to college. And my parents had no money, really. There were five kids. So we all went to state schools in California, which were very inexpensive. Mm -hmm. So the teacher that he studied with classically was teaching at San Francisco State and was Charles Ciani, who's no longer with us. He died many years ago. But he was the principal bassist of the opera and the associate principal of the San Francisco Symphony. So he told me, I I didn't know. You know, my parents didn't even know it. He kept saying, you know, John is a little different. You know, he's got something. And they were like, ah, he's our little John, you know, whatever. You know, <laughs> didn't really have any idea that you could make a living in music. They didn't know anything about the music world. They just, but they did have a good ear. Both of them sang a little bit, you know, just around the house and in church or whatever. So all of a sudden my mentor was saying, you must go and study classical bass with Charles Siani at San Francisco State. My parents were cool with that because it was very cheap. I think for, I went about three years of college and I was a classical bass major, even though I was playing gigs and playing jazz in the jazz group, the big band at school and playing tons of gigs. I started playing gigs when I was in my early teens, you know, so all of a sudden I go to college and then after three years, um, my classical teacher then, but, you know, the first year was San Francisco, then we moved to L.A. in 78. So now I had two more years. I went to Long Beach State, another inexpensive state college. This time, A. Blueboff was a teacher. A. Blueboff was a studio bass player who also had played in the L.A. Phil. Mm -hmm. He played on Jaws. You know, he was one of those guys going, boom, boom, you know, and um, the the movie. And he was very strict also. Um, And after two years with him, he said, you have to stop playing all that other music. and now. Learn the list and audition for the Philharmonic, you know. And I was like, "Ah, I can't. I'm quitting school, and I left because I needed to play all this music. And I was already doing some recording work and doing, you know, little things here and there. Driving up to L.A. to to play in some of the jazz clubs with the older players. So I and he told me a very funny thing uh, that has always stuck with me. It's very funny, especially in light of what happened. Mm-hmm. He said to me because he was frustrated, like he was saying, You know, he was mad that I wouldn't do what he wanted me to do. And he said, When are you going to get tired of playing in those upholstered saloons? You know, yeah. and I was in my mind, you know, I was very respectful and I didn't say anything, but I was thinking in my mind,
2: yeah.
1: I don't think I'll ever get tired of playing in a jazz club. I, I, you know, and I wound up, I played big concert halls all over the world, thank God. And I played festivals and huge things, but I still like also playing in a club where people are right next to me. So I'll never stop enjoying upholstered (laughs) saloons.
0: Interesting. Uh, Throughout your personal uh, journey as a musician, I'm sure uh, anyone for that matter would have undoubtedly encountered a lot of challenging and transformative events that might have probably propelled you to explore spirituality with a profound and a very introspective gaze right so how did these sacred experiences carve certain intricate pathways with your personal musical exploration so it might have sort of illuminated your very essence of of being and uh, fostered a very profound uh, shall we say metamorphosis in uh, you know sort of revealing life's uh, tapestry could you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, I think spiritually, first of all, um, I was raised in the Catholic Church, but at 15, I was asking the priests a lot of questions. Uh-huh. And I didn't feel they were answering them very well. Okay. So being a cheeky little 15-year-old, I left. And uh, then I was started getting hired by some Christians to play in their church. There was a young youth minister and a young music pastor. The music pastor was playing in a teacher's big band in the area where I was going to high school. Uh-huh. They had a big band, pretty good band of the teachers, but
2: okay. they didn't
1: like the bass player. They didn't like the bass player, so they drafted me. So here I was, the little kid playing with the teachers. Well, the guy who was playing piano was learning about jazz, but he was really a good gospel player. And he was really into Andre Crouch, who was a very powerful African-American gospel hero to many people in California.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So he started. They started hiring me, and I would go to their church. And I was like, "Wow, people are happy here, and they're growing. What's what's going on?" So I started asking them questions. And about 17 years old, I became very. uh, I you know, I really had an encounter with the Lord, and I became a Christian. I started studying the Bible, um, and then really trying to learn. But I have to qualify that in that I'm not. Nowadays people think if you say that word that you are a right wing crazy person who who is uh who who allows people like you know certain dictators to get elected president in the United States anyway so uh
2: so his initials are dt
1: <laughs> so anyway you
2: talking about i have no idea yeah, yeah. what you talking about
1: i think you do right? anyway so um I um I started to grow and I realized there was such a thing as grace and mercy. And I was given things. Everybody's given gifts. Everybody. Whether they believe in this in, in, in Jesus or not, everybody gets gifts and, and everybody has something special and unique. Every single person has a unique body, soul, spirit, mind. So I was just going by instinct my whole life. And then I, I sort of had this encounter. And then I realized, because I think, I think, you know, being the son of immigrant parents, they were very tough and trying to push us to become something. So there was a, it was pretty intense. And uh, all of a sudden I, w- I was being taught that I was loved, even though I knew my parents loved me. They were also very tough, but that God loved me, you know, and that was a huge transformation. Uh, But it also was a challenge because I thought, well, he gave me, obviously, these gifts. I didn't just come up with this stuff and be able to play like this. I knew this was coming from another place. It would be very
2: arrogant to think, oh, yeah, I did all this myself. No way. I was just a kid from East Flatbush in Brooklyn. I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. So then I started
1: really, I realized that my responsibility was to develop that gift. And I practiced my tail off. And I really worked hard. I mean, I, I started working hard even when I was 12. After I'd only been playing a couple of years, I decided that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So that was a big deal. And then also what happened was I was s- soon after just sort of captured. My heart was captured by the African-American cultural music and, and the world of that. It became a passion for my brother and I.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we became so passionate. We were devouring records and listening to everything. And then I was welcomed in by people who really knew about that, African-American musicians that taught me and hired me and showed me. And um, I feel like that was one of the greatest gifts God ever gave me, you know, that experience. And I'm still experiencing I mean, you know. I've gotten to play with some of these people that were just names on record covers when I was a kid. And that's mind-blowing. You know, you know, and I think my parents had a good perspective. Like when after things had gone well for me and I was playing with Chick and Herbie and Wayne and all these people, people would say to my mom when she was still alive, Oh, yeah, but your son is. She said, Oh, he's just my
2: John. She was very like low-key. Because she knew. She knew that
1: being a person and a, a human being and, and being someone who was grateful and had, uh, had tried, to be, tried to pursue humility and, and gratitude as opposed to just thumping your chest and saying, look at me, I did all this. I realized pretty soon because when I started composing, I was pretty young. And the thing that blew me away was how could I have a piece of blank music paper. And then a half an hour later, there's a whole
2: thing. Where did that come from? It didn't come from me. I felt like I was a vessel. I still feel like that. I write a lot of music
1: every day. I try to write something. Now, one of my big, uh, um, I have a lot of heroes of, of composers, obviously Wayne chick, but also people like Ennio Morricone who, Wrote every day, he got up, and he just wrote or Stravinsky or Ravel, or so when you listen to that stuff, you realize i I'm not a composer I feel like I'm not a composer, I'm just wrote I write some music, you know so so that 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 um that's a passion, but it's also a check it's it's a check of your spirit, like okay, who do you think you are actually who who are you trying to take credit for things that come from beyond or are you grateful that you, you get those things given to you and now you have to develop and learn? I feel like that process for me has been, it's, it's what keeps me excited. I'm going to be 64 in December and I feel like I'm still growing and, and hopefully improving, you
0: know? For sure. I mean, uh, you didn't you did mention about the whole uh, aspect of discipline and the upbringing that sort of made you the modest being you are today and uh, of course that comes with a lot of lot of success which is uh, something that you 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 have not been chasing forward right like it just came to you because of uh your your whole regime your whole idea of uh what you want in terms of music right so that, that is that is incredibly very very commendable indeed
1: uh but sometimes it's crazy though because you yeah. feel like you know, everybody who's a musician or an artist of any kind, yeah. I think there's a certain insecurity that doesn't matter how many things you achieve or whatever. Sometimes you you have like imposter syndrome kind of sneaks
2: up on you and you go, wait a minute. How could this is not, how could this be? You know what I mean? Because it's it's like Cinderella
1: sometimes for, for many of us. It was for me. I didn't come from a wealthy family who was connected with music and knew everything. I wasn't the fourth generation bass player in my family. or yeah. No, I was just some kid. My brother and I were just sort of like trying to figure it out.
0: Yeah, but, but the intent was pure. Okay, so that's that's what matters.
1: There's definitely a lot of love for it from the very beginning. As soon as it yeah. grabbed our hearts and we were like, yeah. wow, what is this new world?
0: Yeah. Uh, Sachi did mention that you've been uh, keeping very busy and you you added to that you recently played at the International uh, Musician Summit with Nate Smith and Shaki. And, oh yeah! Right, and and July is also going to be yet another busy month, like you mentioned. You're playing with Danilo and uh, Adam, right? So both of these are very contrasting groups in terms of sensibilities, and uh, I'm interested in knowing from you as to how do you balance between uh, showcasing technical virtuosity and conveying emotional depth. In terms of your approach, when you play in terms of these two projects, how is it how is it different? how do you approach it I think um
1: there's a there's a misconception sometimes about uh, that because there is a definitely an
2: aspect of um emotion and direct emotional content and um in every music that you play. And also,
1: sometimes people have the the wrong version of what technique is.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And you think that technique is just velocity, but technique is your sound, your ability to speak through your instrument without any blockage, so that your whole spirit comes straight through the instrument. So whether you're playing one note or 8 million, it's really the same thing and especially if you're a bass player because
2: in all the music i play it's all about rhythm sound and feeling always could be could
1: be playing with Nate and 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 uh and also by the way those guys are virtuosos too yeah. they 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 have an ability to not just um i think sometimes people oversimplify groove music too They think, oh, yeah, that's just simple groove music. Oh, yeah, you try it. Can you make it feel like that? It's not simple. It's because it's the ability to be so connected with your instrument that you can play a very straightforward thing and just move people and shake them. That's huge. Um, Sometimes now with the whole YouTube thing, you have people just trying to play super fast and do all these crazy things.
2: You know, it's not always... um, that's not what moves me, anyway. Uh, it has
1: to be emotional. Whether it's one, of, that's what I. Why my, one of my biggest heroes was John
2: Coltrane. Destroy you with a ballad, and and blow your mind with countdown. You know, just and everything in between. That to me is why. Um, sometimes I think people think,
1: oh yeah, you're doing these such widely different things. But there is a thread that goes all the way through all of them, and I think it's it's the emotional thing, the, the delivery of the emotional uh, and spiritual, you know, whatever whatever message you're trying to send. Then there's the connection with your instrument that demands a lot of time, and also learning how to express because then then technique. Uh, what I try to tell my students: technique is a lot of things. Sometimes it could be velocity for certain music, but it's. Coordination, it's sound, it's rhythmic feel, it's, it's the ability to to get the feeling that's inside of you out so that 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 gonna that gonna involve some mechanical things too, because if you're hung up mechanically, you might have a beautiful feeling inside you, but you can't get it out because you can't can't get the instrument to get out of the way. So that maybe maybe that's how I look at it, you know.
2: Right on, right on. Uh, talking about Let's talk about your music, right? So talking
0: about one of your uh, recent collaborations on the album, Beams, was it Beams? The 2023 release, uh, the um, one, one with Dan Costa.
2: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah,
0: okay. Yeah, so uh, that particular record had very deep musical roots. Uh, you know, in terms of the entire collaboration, uh, what i noticed was it has certain traditions from the past which are deeply rooted but again uh, it was it was some kind of ethereal jazz shall we say when i heard it for the very first time a great example of that would be the track Tao, which has deep musical roots but has a very modern approach in terms of the sound right so can we talk a little bit about that particular collaboration
1: you know uh, <laughs> i haven't heard it much so
0: okay
1: um i can't really speak to it that much i mean i i did dan's record and i you know i do a lot of recording for people and with people so what happens is i pour myself completely into the project okay and then the next week happens and i'm running into another thing so um and i never know the impact that these things have on people like you just said that to me. And I went, wow, I have to go back and check it out because I, you know, these things keep rolling by, you know, and and the things that, that I'm most connected to are still the things with Danilo and Brian, the things with Wayne, the things with Chick, the things with, um, people, uh, like Nate Smith or my guitar band and, uh, or uh, or my brazilian trio with uh, with your know, and Rogério bocato or those are the things that i'm more connected to because they're my groups and my music and but other people's music i feel like i'm very blessed that i get to experience yeah. when somebody calls me for something i take it very seriously um and i just sort of dive in there you know and yeah. find out what they're into uh rosario bocato just uh, had there's a gentleman named beto pacello from from brazil and i've done we just did the third record by him that he's come up to the united states and uh and we did it with you know with this time we had eric harlan i think eric harlan's played on all of them john ellis and um beautiful music really beautiful music and uh so those those records sometimes because they're in a, there's a, there's a a circle of people who are, who are more than just people that I play with, their family. And so those things are more in the forefront, even though, you know, I can play on Dan's record and really enjoyed that. Uh, and, and again, the interesting thing about being a musician, you just don't know how it affects other people. Here you are, you came on today and you said, boom, this record. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't, you go back and hear it.
0: Uh, a lot of lot of listeners would like to know uh, about the aspect of performance. Uh, you played with a reputed uh, Chick korea Electric Band. And yeah. uh, the live performances are known for uh, the adulation, the high energy, and the electrifying atmosphere. So how do you personally tap into that energy and maintain a very strong connection with the audience during these live performances uh, in that context?
1: Well, it, it kind of taps into what we just talked about. That became a family for me. Uh, that was, a, you know, I started playing with Chick when I was 25. And we had 10 incredibly intense, solid years. And then I sort of went off on my own and would do my own thing. And then I got involved with Wayne. And then I would do reunion things with Chick, too. We never stopped playing. In yeah. fact, before he died, we, we had done a tour of Europe. Um, and he was planning doing another electric band tour. And I got a, a bass ready for that, uh, a butterscotch looking six string that you see on some of my YouTube things. Yeah. And um, we were gearing up for it, you know, and for more trio stuff. And then he just vanished, like he was gone. Uh, and then this year in March, Wayne left. And this was just very heavy because we had actually spent 20 years solid with that quartet. And before that, Chick introduced me to Wayne in 86, just a year after I started with Chick. So we had a very long track, Wayne and I. It became like a second dad. So these two things shaped me a lot. Now, the, um, the thing that the Chickory Electric Band did for me, first of all, I was playing with a fair amount of people before I joined Chick in 85. And, you know, I was young and I was growing and I was feeling I was getting excited because I was getting a lot of opportunities. And I felt like I was starting to be comfortable with improvising and really felt I was getting stronger. Then the first rehearsal, which it's a trio at that point, it's just me and Weckl. And we're playing acoustic and electric stuff. So we get in there, we start playing. He takes a solo and I'm like, oh, my God. What? I mean, I've heard this on records all these years, but now it's right in front of me and it's so powerful that I don't think I can hang. Then he looks at me, and it's my turn to play. And I'm like, oh no, no. I, I'm not an improviser. I can't play. Talk about imposter syndrome. So, and all of a sudden he starts comping and he's playing all these jabs, the chords, and it sounds like it feels like I'm in the ring with Muhammad Ali and he's he's just killing me. It's just like And so all of a sudden I realized, you know, I have to get a lot stronger. Rhythmically, I have to make statements that are more powerful. I have to dig really deep and try to really um, mean what I say and say what I mean, you know. And and man, it was like a school for me. It made me much stronger as a musician. And and it, it encouraged me as a composer. He was very good to me. Chick also was a a very fatherly mentor and he got me my first record deal. He believed in me as a composer because I used to play my stuff for him at the piano, things I was writing. And one day he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just writing my music. And he goes, yeah, you should have a band and you should be making records. And I'm like, okay, how's that going to happen? He goes, I said, well, I can get a band. I'll start playing. He said, but I said, but a record deal, nobody wants to sign. I'm a bass player. He goes, I'll take care of that. And he got me, he got me my record deal on GRP. So that became a situation where it was very deep and very tight. So when we went out on the, first of all, we played a lot. We rehearsed, the band learned things fast. By then I was a good sight reader and Dave was very good. So we just learned the music fast. And then when Eric,
2: Eric is an incredible sight reader. And Frank came and so, you know, that band became very close. And we toured
1: hundreds and hundreds of concerts every year for a while. So that became such a comfortable thing. Like you, you go and play all these concerts. So when you got out in front of the people, it didn't matter if they were 10,000 people or in one time we played in Ibirapuera in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil for like 65,000 people or something. But we were together, we were, it was always like a family. So we just got up there and played and we had fun. And we, because we had played the music so much, I had a lot of it memorized. So we could look at the people and play to them and
2: just, it was really natural. And we used to run around the stage and, you know, we were young and yeah, you know, I was 25. You know,
1: when I got the gig and then that, you know, between 25 and 35, we did hundreds of gigs and tours and tours and tours, it was crazy. And so you get comfortable being in front of all those people and you still have your, your family unit on stage with you. And you just feel like you're safe and you can just stretch out and try new things. And Chick was just incredibly powerful and always reaching for something else. So that's, that's what the electric band meant to me. And also we were very involved in the records. You know, we even co-wrote some of the music and helped and, um, Chick was very generous with his inclusion of us in, in, you know, helping produce the records too in a way.
2: Incredible, just gives me goosebumps listening to all of this,
0: <laughs> finally talking to you, getting to hear all of this. It's, it's very overwhelming, but at the same time, uh, totally inspiring.
1: Well, we, we had no idea. See, this is the funny thing, you know. Yeah. We were in our 20s, and we, I was just excited just to play with Chick. Dave and I were like, wow, this is it. This is incredible, you know.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And um, we had no idea the impact of that band. Really, we were just so excited to have this opportunity. And then all of a sudden over the years, we get all this feedback from people and, and, and actually from India too. I've never played in India. And I've had people write to me and say, you don't realize, and just like, wow, the, the music went all over the world. And we really had no idea of how wide the net was. You know what I mean? We had no idea. Then all of a sudden, a bunch of people from the gospel world told me how much that changed the way they thought about playing in church even. And um, I was just like, really? Wow. We had no idea because really also we were so focused. Chick's music was intense. We were so focused on learning the music, playing the music well, going out and touring and touring and touring. We really didn't lift our heads up to see what was going on. We really didn't know.
2: It was funny. I mean, we knew we had something special, but we didn't know the impact. You should come to India. What's stopping you? I don't know. Uh, You know, I
1: I did something with Zakir. Uh, A few years ago, I wrote a protest piece about the 2016 election in America, and it was called Hypocrisy. And uh, I, I wrote this piece, and we did it uh with a with a conductor from India, too Zayn Dalal was a mm. conductor and and it, we did it on a program where my piece was played with Danilo Perez and Brian blade and I sure. with a with an orchestra from the Royal Conservatory of Music, a student orchestra, a very good college orchestra up in Toronto, Canada and uh, Mervan Mehta, who' was the director of the concert series, whose father was Zubin Mehta,
2: is yep. Zubin conductor yep.
1: so, so um we did this thing there, and and um, it was it was programmed. Lucky for us, on the same night that there was going to be a tabla concerto with Zakir Hussain and the same orchestra. So, all of a sudden, I get an email one day from Mervan, and he said, "Yeah, you know, Zakir is going to be on the thing. He'd really like to play with you guys, and would you like that?" And we were like, "What? You know, <laughs> can we? You know?" And so the the concert started with Brian and Danilo and I. Mm-hmm playing with Zakir just free. We just started playing. And uh, we get to the rehearsal and Zakir said, you know, I've been wanting to play with you guys for years. And we're like, are you kidding? We've been wanting to just meet you all of our lives. I mean, you know, just to be in, to work with him was like a huge honor. So that was really special. And then we got to do my piece, which was for a chamber orchestra and the trio. And then Zakir did his tablican chair of the second half. It was really a special night. Really, really, really special. So he said, oh, yeah, we got to go to India. I'm going to bring you down there. So I, I'm, I'm waiting. We'll see.
0: Incredible. Uh, this conversation is going to get even more interesting because we have another very reputed musician and uh, amazing, amazing gentleman by the name Sheldon De Silva who. Uh, Admires your music, who has been uh, listening to you for several decades now. Uh, so let's hear from him.
3: Hello. Hi. Hi. How uh, are you? What an honor, John, to be here. I have to just say, first of all, uh, namaste, and thank you for just having me uh, be a part of this conversation. Um, it's It's been an incredible honor. I was listening to a lot of things you said, and it's just... Um, overwhelming i would say because there's so much of uh, first of all you reminded me of a lot of similarities in my upbringing uh, as a musician especially with my dad he was a guy who started me on the guitar and how i took the bass because of him and of course uh jesus christ i mean you know he i i've always believed that he is the one that gives us all this information and um you know makes us who we are and be, whatever we give out is is all from him and they are just vessels of it so thank you for those uh, wonderful messages that you have shared with everybody because i think a lot more people need to hear that
1: well i'm i'm grateful that um that you like the music and that that uh it's been hopefully a help and help to you in your life because
3: oh i mean but- you know. I have to, I've got a lot of stories. <laughs> if you have the time.: No, <laughs> so I, I have to tell you a little bit. I mean, um, so India um, didn't have too many bass players at one point in time, and we had a, a fantastic bass player that was my inspiration by the name of Carl Peters, And he played with a legendary piano player called Louis Banks, who you must have definitely heard of. And uh, so it was very hard to kind of come across information. To become a bass player, you know, so, uh, we, would yeah, only, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we would rely on just cassettes uh, of music for my time. And uh, so obviously, the first thing that people give you is Jaco Pastorius, and I, I heard by the report. Yeah. So, yeah, and I was like, wow, man, this is amazing. And I, yeah, <laughs> and I just completely got um, held on to the sound of the bass. So I just, I said, man, I love this instrument. I want to play this instrument. And like all of us, we all learned teen town and then we thought, man, you know, I can play the bass till I heard you, you know, oh. <laughs> till I heard you. And this is serious because I, I saw you on an LP uh, called Inside Out with Chick.
2: Oh, and, yeah.
3: Yeah. And I was like, is that a bass? What is that? I mean, um, so I just got completely blown away by your sound, by your approach. Um uh, I started playing six-string bass because of you. And wow. um, so it's an honor for me to be here because you taught me more uh, than just the bass because for me, with Jaco, yeah, there was a groove and there was that bass sound and there was a lot of information there. Uh, but with you, it was there was this major musicality that came out which included harmony, melody, with the rhythm. And it sounded produced always it you sounded like you were dynamically uh, produced and mixed and mastered so that sound on your instrument uh, was life-changing you know so i wow. i started looking at music more from a point of view as of music versus bass playing and that's what changed my approach because uh, one is to be a good bass player but one is to be a great musician and and add to the music eventually so i really thank you for leading me on that path.
1: you know thank you so much i want to share with you too i mean i haven't had a chance to talk about all the bass heroes that i had that made me sort of pursue that way but i have to give credit to two a few that come to mind the first one that showed me that you could pursue both acoustic and electric was stanley clark yeah, he was such a pioneer, and I think sometimes the younger players now don't realize what what he did. Yeah, us, the ones who were a little older, he blew my. I thought, wow, what? How can he do both like yeah. that? You know. And then for the six string, it was Anthony Jackson who was the sort of the Galileo, the the inventor. <laughs> you know what I mean? He yeah. he was doing it, and everybody said, "Oh, you're going to get tendonitis," and and you know, and he said, "Ah." You know, and he he created this whole world, right? Yeah. That's why I started. I, I really picked up the six string because I heard him, and I knew I couldn't sound like him. He's very unique and very special right. to me. Right. So I um, I wound up choosing it because of Chick's music. Right. It was a, an orchestrational choice because I was already writing music. When I started playing with Chick, I realized there's three of us. He's blowing his brains out, and then I've got to play. And I'm thinking, I want to play those low notes. He's got these big synthesizers that are playing lower notes than me. Wait a minute, I'm the bass player. I want to play the low notes. And then the high C string gave me a chance to to peek over the top of all that sound, the synths and yeah. you know, electric pianos and everything, so that I could try to sound a little bit more like a tenor saxophone over the top of yep. the music. So that was why, that's sort of part of the reason that... Uh, it happened in the way that it did for me. I wasn't really, I didn't set out to be um, a big influencer on people. I just, I was just reaching. But you
3: are, (laughs) but you just are.
1: (laughs) I was was reaching for, um, it was an orchestration thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like you say, maybe, maybe because I I experienced a lot of learning in the studios in LA when I moved there. Uh, about thinking always about the entire, what Ron Carter calls the big M of music, the whole picture. So, oh. you, in order to survive in the studio world, you had to think like a composer and you had to come up with bass lines that made every song have a chance to fly. You know what I mean? Really right. take off. So, right. even though when I was in my late teens and my early 20s, I was trying to get all this stuff together because I heard saxophone and I wanted to be like them, but I also heard all these other instruments and I also heard all my bass heroes who could groove and and just really change the music by just a four note bass groove. Exactly. So there was all this stuff sort of kind of rumbling around in my head and one of the big influences I had as an older brother in music and in the faith was Ab- Abraham Laboria. Oh
3: yeah. Right.
1: He was like a an older brother to me. He and Alex Acuña can you imagine these guys you know we went to church together you know, Alex played on weather, you know, heavy weather, yeah. played drums, and, yeah. and Abraham played on a million records, and he and he's got me on like gospel recordings. So oh. that idea of the the music being this big thing that we were a part of, but we had so much responsibility and influence to participate in. Right. That was that was those guys really influenced
2: me to right. think more that way.
1: Wow. Because you know, in L.A. at that. That point, you know it was the late seventies, early eighties, and um you know they they told me they said, "Look, if you really want to do well here, you really have to be a great pocket player, and you really have to be able to bring your sound and your feeling and your rhythm and everything to elevate every tune that you play on, you know exactly. and you know, I was young, and i'm thinking wow this is this is a big challenge, you know I mean." Uh, it's not just about showing people that you can blow
3: exactly yeah.
1: you know it's yeah. it's about being able to play one note or two notes and still make it sound like it's beautiful you know correct Correct. so exactly. there was this balancing point and then of course then you get with chick and he's writing all this stuff and i had to play all this crazy stuff that i never even envisioned right but still even in that band when it came to playing behind other people and playing the songs we really made it about groove, yeah. Because Dave was also coming from that other world as well.
3: Yeah, that, that's what I meant. I mean, it sounds so produced. That means every the arrangements were so beautifully written that everyone had a place in the in the mix, and no one was stepping on each other. You know, so that that was incredible. And one more thing I wanted to ask you is that you mentioned even here with regards to uh, uh, Stanley Clark, but. For, for for me, again, you were the one that uh, showed us that you can play the upright bass and the electric bass at a premium level. Now, how do you maintain something like that? Because uh, a lot of people think that it's the bass, so it's the same. But in hindsight, I think the upright bass is kind of a whole other instrument in a way. There as is. well. Yeah. So uh, how do you maintain, you know, keeping the balance between both?
1: Well let me say, I think I was very naive in trying to do both. Like I, I had no idea when I, I just thought, oh, this is really cool. I'm going to, and then, you know, then you sign up for a life of practicing twice as much <laughs> as you would have had to. So, so for me, I, I used to joke with people, it's a long way from the bow to the slap, you know, it's yeah. like, oh, what am I doing? Am I crazy? You know, yeah. and yeah. sometimes I would feel like I really had to like if I was playing a lot of one thing, I'd have to go and shed the other thing exactly yes. other things that I wasn't getting to do Perfect. and so it was always this shedding shedding you know trying to to be you know uh and 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 honing on honing in on specific sounds and players that really inspired me, like for me, even though we're the same age uh for the slap stuff, of course. Marcus and I both grew up listening to Larry Graham. Right. That was the archetype. Yeah. yeah. The, the innovator. But when I started hearing, the first time I heard Marcus on a record, I think it was about 19. And a drummer friend of mine played me this Tom Brown trumpet record with, with Marcus on it. It was called Funkin' for Jamaica. I had never heard Marcus before. Even though we both were born in Brooklyn, he was raised in Queens, I was raised in Brooklyn. Right and we're a similar age we're, he became an influence on me in terms of the slap thing i love the way he plays right uh, i love victor wooten too who's younger than me i think he's sort of yeah. an astronaut, you know <laughs> another galileo yeah uh, electric bass and um so i really uh i really found influences on different instruments too the electric bass the acoustic bass um On acoustic bass, you know, I studied classically, so I had some players that really influenced me. And then, of course, in my generation, you know, I like to tell this story. In 1978, I went to college uh, in the fall. Well, actually, started in the fall of 1977. And I was the youngest kid in the class, in the bass class. You know, there was this big maestro, Charles and who was principal of the opera. And he would have a bass class every Friday at San Francisco State in the afternoon. So the first day I walk in and I was playing a lot of jazz and really just starting to get myself together in the classical stuff. I had played a little in high school, but I had only been playing bass, the big bass. This was my, for two years. I, you know, started when I was 15 because I was so small. I couldn't mm-hmm. even hold it until I was 15. So I go in there and I'm, you know, and I, and I, and this kid gets up. He's a senior. I'm a freshman. I'm 17. I haven't turned 18 yet till wow. the end of the year. Guy gets up, plays a Bach cello suite at pitch, same place where the cellos play, way up here. He Whoa. kills it, and I'm sitting there and I'm watching and I'm going, "Oh my goodness, is this the way they sound at college?" Because <laughs> I'm quitting and getting out of here, you know. <laughs> so I was freaking out, and that started me on this journey, you know, with the maestro, and then two years later with a blue a, a blue buff at uh, at Long Beach State, and then just going down that path and working really hard and when i played with joe farrell the great saxophone player who played with chick he was on spain and all those big huge hits he liked that i played with the bow so i would play and then when i got with chick he said oh man you know even though i had ran away from the classical thing um chick liked the bow so i I kept working on it and developing it and then he was the one who encouraged me and then uh, gave me the opportunity to make Heart of the Bass. Wow. That record where we were doing some of that stuff. And so yeah, I kept pursuing what, that's, that. That's
3: one of my favorite albums as well.
1: Thank you. Thank yeah. you. So that, that, that would have never happened had it not been for Chick. Wow. He, he, he the, no record company would sign up for that idea. Right. But when he was given his uh, own label as a part of GRP called Stretch Records, right. that was the first record he chose to release. Correct. I was so honored, like, cause we would talk, we were on the road all the time. And he goes, well, what are you dreaming about? What is your, I I really like to make a record with orchestra and where I got to play with the bow and also play my six string. And then Jeff Beal wrote the concerto and Chick wrote those miniatures. He did all that for me, it was a huge gift. And that record was the first of its kind. And it's still kind of unusual, but you don't really hear many people writing for the both instruments. Like the other person who wrote me a concerto was, Mark Anthony Turner the British composer who's amazing. He wrote one for the six string and also for the, the uh, double bass. So all that to say, I just feel like I'm always practicing. Uh, I've been through all these periods where I'm shedding really, I'm going after a certain thing to to push it up. And then I notice the other thing is sagging. I have to go back and work on that. And, right. and uh, between the electric and the acoustic, I'm always juggling. For a while there, when I came back to New York, I was getting... A lot of calls on the upright bass and not as much on the electric. In fact, some people didn't even remember that I played it. Oh, and um, so then I started really working on making people aware that look, this is a part of me. It's important too. So yeah. I've been yeah. getting to do a better balance. I would say for the last at least ten years. You know, wow. When I've been moved- here. I I moved here in '96. I've been here a long time. <laughs> I grew up here for the first. 12, 13 years, so.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, and uh, you developed a very unique sound, I think even moving from uh, the Ken Smith to your Yamaha TRB. So uh, that sound was really unique. But this is a question I wanted to know uh, because it may help a lot of young musicians is that when you all tackled uh, Chick's music, especially in the band, the music was very complex. And like you said, uh, you were maybe thrown in the deep end in the beginning of it. And you worked really hard uh, towards developing your vocabulary to match that. Uh, but what happens is, um, what I've noticed is when we watch any of the concerts, you'll are not reading any material. You'll have memorized all these tunes, which is one. Which is pretty difficult in itself because the tunes are large, the arrangements are large. Uh, so you have a memorized this whole tune. And two is, uh, you, when you play a solo, it is not just... Blastering chops and lines. It, it it's it feels like there's composition within the composition. So anything you can advise? Because I want to add one more thing, is that uh the education system maybe in India is not yet developed uh like ar- around the world. We don't have conservators as yet, we don't have schools that match the rest of the world, at least yes, yes. even when I was growing up. And so uh we had to learn off like how you did it, probably when you were young, but yeah, um, records. Yeah, that's just, how I did it. Yeah, yeah. Just, but so we, but we lost out on the theory part of it a lot, you know. So reading charts and stuff. Like I was, I was very fortunate to meet Louis Banks, and he taught me. I am who I am today because of him, because he taught me how to like read charts, play jazz. So, uh, so, so that's really crucial. But a lot of youngsters don't get that education uh, because a bunch of reasons where. Uh, today, it's a quick fix. Everybody wants to make a quick one minute video, get that hall of oh, fame, yeah. and close it, you know. So, uh, but there are a lot of great artists out there who want to, you know, grow as musicians and learning this compositional thing, which is one. And two, how can we uh, still get that kind of education amongst this chaotic online forum, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very difficult. I, I, I'm still a huge fan of transcribing, whether you write it down or not. Learning things from the people that inspire you, being able to play along with the recordings. Um, for me, what happened with Chick too, is he gave me an enormous amount of freedom. When you play bass with Chick career, it's maybe
2: the most free chair in the band. Um, I had, you know, but maybe that's because he trusted me. I don't know. He, he, he allowed me
1: to do whatever I wanted, basically. Of course, he wrote out some things that I had to play and read, but the band was very good at reading. So, and which was ironic because my, my mentor, Chris Paler or Polar, I was speaking to him the other day because he just turned 79 and we were laughing because people would say to him, man, John can really read. And he would just start laughing because he remembers when I was, you know, when I met him, I was about 12 or 13 and I couldn't read anything. And finally, he would fidget and play the exercise I was supposed to play, and I would hear it, and I would just play it. And he'd go, no, 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 you have to learn how to read. And he forced (laughs) me to learn how to read. Right. And so the ear, the development of the ear, rhythm, and sound are still the three most important things. The things that many uh, formal institutions get wrong, and they don't stress them enough. The reason why I love being with Danilo Perez and his global... um, the, you know the 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 uh, global institute the global jazz institute at berkeley is he is prioritizing we talk about decolonizing the curriculum right the curriculum in many many places of of, of teaching music and, and and jazz and everything is still based on an on a, a european western european um version of what it is to learn music okay a lot of times this is focus more on notes and harmonic information than rhythm without rhythm there is no life to any harmony or linear expression of notes right and that's a big problem <laughs> because we have to learn how to train our ears to hear the, to hear like pitch recognition and chordal recognition that's also a big hallmark of jazz in classical institutions they teach you how to do solfège to sing yeah but if you go on a bandstand and somebody goes, boom, and hits a chord, yeah. uh, if you can't hear it, then you're dead in the water. You can't even move exactly. because, boom, it's gone. So what happened with me was I came up in a time where I also had access to David Baker. He was doing those Jamie Ebersole camps around, and he used to teach ear training like that. Like he would sit at the piano and boom and hit a chord, and we would have to sing and find the lowest note in the scale, find the root of the chord with our ear and then sing through it the notes that sort of sounded good against that chord right that's huge because you have to develop that quickness luckily i had an ear my ear was the only thing i had when i was growing up at first and i i i i I get a sense that maybe that that's what got you through the first part of your playing was your ear right yeah yeah there's something about that. That we have to continue to teach, and we try to do it at the Global Institute really heavily. Because without that quickness, because the ear also not only responds to the harmonic information and the linear information, but it also responds to the rhythmic information. Your ear has to be able to match rhythm, and that's rarely taught too. People don't say, okay, da-da, da-da, and can you sing it back? Okay. Or in, in Indian classical music, obviously you have to, right? Yeah, those rhythms are.
3: Yeah, you have. To in fact, in fact, that comes. For, yeah, that comes first yeah. for us, like
1: the rhythm. Yes, the rhythm. so okay. that's good. That's a very yeah. excellent thing because there nobody hands you a sheet of tea highs and says no. learn these. Yes. No, they sing them to you, right? And then yeah. you have to pick it up. I mean, yeah. that's good yeah. because it's organic. Yes, but that's not Western European approach. You see, mm. so yeah. there is sometimes because of the imperialism of that, and you could say the, the white conquerors, um, <laughs> there is a problem with education in that right. regard. Right. I've invested my whole life in an African music and it's the biggest gift I've ever received. Yeah. Yeah. And so my job is to try to teach that to people. Correct. I think that's more important and that's how you wade through the sea of endless things. Everybody's saying they have the shortcut. There is no shortcut. There's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there is no shortcut. <laughs> there isn't one. I,
3: I wish there was. I tried to find it. But I didn't. And um and going through the grind is a is a beautiful process in itself, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Because I, I had at various points I had like epiphanies about where I was in the rhythmic scheme. Like, you know, I remember being younger and I my time, I had a natural time feel, but I didn't have control over all the tempos. And I, when I was, before I got to the play with Chick, I was more dependent on drummers. Right. And I remember I spent a few months with the Crusaders, which was a very funk group. And they had fired the drummer that they grew up with playing. And they went through this. They were really trying to find a drummer. And I got the gig. I only lasted about three three months. And... um. I just wasn't strong enough in my being to withstand, they were, there was a lot of, they were trying to figure out how to be after they, you know, it's interesting when you have a family of musicians together that grow up and you remove one of the pieces. Right. It's not the same anymore. And then you're trying to get somebody to play like, but then you tell them, don't play like the old guy, but you really kind of want it, you know? (laughs) but I realized at that point that i wasn't standing I wasn't strong enough within i was twenty three when I had that job. I wasn't strong enough to understand that wait a minute, I have this. I didn't have the confidence and I didn't have the the rhythmic power at all the different tempos. I was a little weak in certain places and i and so if somebody started to pick on that, right. then maybe I would get confused and thought, "Oh, I can't play anymore, you know." It was an epiphany for me. After that, I went away and I really got in the shed with that. And then two years later, I was playing with David Sanborn. <laughs> I was playing with Chick actually. Chick oh, in April, and in the summer, I had a summer off from Chick, and I played with Sanborn and I played all those Marcus Miller things. Yeah, and I felt okay. Now I feel like I have yeah. the confidence and certain control over certain tempo that I didn't really own before.
3: Right. Uh, yeah, and the f- the phrasing is what makes the. The information anyways so yeah the yeah. stronger the rhythm the better the phrasing yeah so uh another questions if i we have the time uh is yeah. um it, you know a lot of the modern bass players have started to sound a particular way um which is i find it really weird i don't i can't put my finger on on it and, and why is that happening uh because Uh, when I was growing up, it was like you, Anthony Jackson, there was Gary Willis, there was uh, Victor, there was Stanley Clark, and everyone had this unique sound. All of y'all brought this amazing, unique sound. And today, it seems like everyone's playing the same way. So why, what do you feel about that? Well, I think there's
1: certain things that are easier to copy than others. Um, Particularly, okay, Jocko was a huge influence on all of us in my generation, too.
2: After Stanley, that was like the like right. a thing that happened. All of a sudden, the fretless and but here's the crux of it.
1: A lot of the younger players, the only thing they took from Jocko was short notes. Right. And they play all their notes with the same articulation. Right. And they're playing tick it Sounds like a typewriter. Jocko didn't sound like a typewriter. He was no. funky. He could play that yeah. short thing. Or like for me, I grew up also when we moved from New York, we lived in the Bay Area for a while. When I lived in the Bay Area, primary influence was was uh, Rocco Prestia and Paul Jackson who played with yeah. Herbie. Wow. They had a wow. way of playing that short stuff too, but they had other articulations. There were yeah. slides. There was long notes. Yeah, there yeah. was uh, shakes. There were all these expressive devices, right? Yes, yes. So... And Jocko had that lyrical thing with the fretless and beauty and dynamics and lyricism. But the only the thing that's easiest to copy is the because then they play everything the same and they don't have to become. It, it takes technique to be subtle. It takes exactly. technique yeah. to make a sound that's beautiful. To pull a sound that's beautiful and rich and let notes ring. Use some vibrato. All that yeah. stuff it takes a little bit more. St- of your heart and your mind working together to create something different. Yeah. So now a lot of times they hear a certain thing and they grab that and they think, Oh, I can't I have it now. I'll put a YouTube video up of me doing that, and then it'll show everybody that I got it. Man, music is much deeper than that. Yeah. You it's know? easy
3: to grab that stuff into one minute also. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah.
2: And,
1: and and part of the thing that drove me to to articulate different and improvise over jazz and tunes with changes, was the fact that I when I, even when I was very young and at first listening to certain bass players, I said, why is it that when Charlie Parker plays his solo, it's got all these sounds and articulations and feelings? Yeah. And unless it was Ray Brown, obviously, who had a lot of feelings and articulations and things, maybe it was, you know, you, you would hear one of those bebop records that, that didn't have Ray Brown on it. And all of a sudden, you know, Charlie Parker plays a solo that changes the universe. Dizzy Gillespie follows him and does the same. And, you know, maybe it was Hank Jones killing on the piano or Bud Powell. And then the bass solo comes and it's like, it sounds like there's there's such a disparity of expression between those things that I went, wow, I want to do better than that. I just want to be, I want to be like Ray or I want to be, you know, like my heroes were the people who had the big M of music in their mind. It wasn't just playing the notes one way with right. having a conversation and telling a story, that takes a lot more doing. And you yeah. can't learn it and put it up on YouTube. Also, you have to live life. You have to right. go through joys and sorrows and disappointments and exciting triumphs. And yeah. and the lows of, like, crashing, too. Yeah. You know, I always tell people, you know, um, there was a bass player named Herb Mickman who was hysterically funny. Uh, and he had played with Sarah Vaughn with with Chick, actually. And he taught a lot of people. And and he used to come see me play when I played with Victor Feldman. I was very young, was way before Chick. And um he was there with a date one night, and um he he just had a hilarious sense of humor, you know. Um, he didn't realize it at the time, but I was going through a very rough my first marriage was very rough. I I I got married very young, I was naive, and I thought I could outrun. Sort of God's direction in my life, I got it. I got it, and it was terrible. And so, um, I was always into blues players. I was always into blues, BB King, and all the stuff. I later on I got to play with BB, but I was into blues and the expression of that. And so, Herb Mickman was there with his date one time, and she said, "Oh, do you teach him?" And he said, "No, no, no, no. The only thing I could teach him how to do is not pay retail." <laughs> and then, and then he said. He said, I don't understand how he can play the blues like that. He's never dealt with a lawyer. But unfortunately, he was prophetic because very soon I was dealing with a lawyer. I went oh, through a horrendous divorce. But all that to say, when you go through the ups and downs of life, that gives you something to speak about when you play. Yeah. Not that you want to suffer
2: needlessly. Yeah.
1: Look, everybody has challenges. Yeah. And unless you develop other ways of touching the instrument and being connected to it in a personal way. Your music will sound very boxy because you'll only have a small set of articulations, maybe one or two, and that doesn't get it. When you hear all these geniuses and brilliant people playing, they have so many ways to play one note. There's no comparison. And that, I think, is what you're talking
2: about. Yeah.
3: In fact, uh, I would love it if you gave me a review on one of my tunes. Uh, I had written it with the same intention in mind. Uh, it's called When Times Change. And I had dedicated it to my father who passed away. So, wow. uh, yeah, so I had, you know, this, this is one moment during the whole pandemic. Uh, he passed away just before the pandemic. And then we were stuck in this pandemic. And I just wanted to, you know, play it in a way that was just all bass. So the whole tune is just bass. And uh, it's something that came naturally to me and it didn't involve (laughs) too many chops or what I do usually. So I would love it if you uh, had a listen whenever you had the time.
1: Absolutely. Send it to me.
3: Yeah, definitely. We'll do that. So Aditya, do you have any questions?
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So gentlemen, uh, I'd like to come to the last part of our agenda in the interest of time where I'd love for the two of you uh, to have and part- to have a fun time and participate uh, in this fun segment, which is a rapid fire segment, wherein okay. I'll be shooting across <laughs> some very interesting questions.
3: What was the, the prize? What was the prize? the first you have to tell us the prize.
0: <laughs> the prize. The prize would be uh, probably uh, getting to attend uh, John's next uh, concert <laughs> with Danilo and Adam. Oh.
3: But then, what's ah. the pri- what is the price wow. for John? What is John's price? That's okay. John,
0: I'm... John gets to come back to India. John gets to come
3: to, John India. Gets come to India. Yeah. India, that's, that's right. That's right. Okay. Of, collaborate okay. Done. with uh, Louis and you. Yeah, that's done. It <laughs> yeah. that works. That works. All
0: right. So, first first question.
3: So, I hope, John, I hope you win. <laughs> <laughs> the
0: first question uh, here's the question uh, What is that one song that always makes you cry? Mm.
2: Mm. Oh,
3: man, that's a difficult one. I would say uh the Joni Mitchell song for me at least. Oh, uh what's it called? I'm
2: drawing up blank. You wanna look it up? Uh, uh yeah, I'll tell you.
0: John, John, do you wanna do you wanna take a shot? I have
2: so many.
1: I have so many. Maybe um, one. You can just
0: pick one now.
1: Yeah. Okay, the one, the one recently that's really been killing me is there's because Wayne passed, Wayne Shorter died. There's a piece of his called the Meridian Wood Sylph." It's a crazy title, but it's on a du- duet record with Herbie Hancock called One Plus One. Meridian Wood Sylph. It sounds like it has that beautiful impressionistic thing like Ravel, and it's, it's gut-wrenching. The melody on the soprano, his soprano playing is what makes me cry. Oh, It's insane. It's so beautiful. Like there's nobody like that, and uh, that's one of them.
3: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, mine was called both sides. Now, if I...
2: oh, now that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. one with the orchestra, the yeah, orchestral. The one girls. in the orchestra. Oh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> also for her, there's one of hers that I played with her once. I got to play with her once. Wow. It was a thing with Herbie. It was a big tribute to Herbie in the in uh, L.A. at the Kodak theaters. You know, sort of a retrospective, and part of the concert. I got to play with, it was Vinnie Kalyut and I and Herbie. She came out and sang Amelia. Wow. Really which she did, cool. yeah, she did on the record too, I think. She did, um, I don't know if she did it on that record. She sang some on that record called Rivers that yes, Herbie yeah. did. But her version of Amelia, you know, oh my sure. God. And yeah. she sang it with us
2: that night. It was, that's a killer. Special, you know? yes.
0: definitely. Yeah. On the contrary, what is your favorite guilty pleasure song?
2: Guilty pleasure song. <laughs> I don't there, you know how, how to answer. To, that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I will. I, I have to give you one, one.
1: I have to give you one more that, that that used to make me cry when I was a kid. There were two. Uh, for once in my life, Stevie Wonder and I was made to love her. That's what made me want to play the bass. But also, used to, I used to get emotional when he played the harmonica solo.
2: Okay. On
1: uh, for once in my
2: life. So guilty pleasure. Wow, man. I would say um, my wife and I
1: have two theme songs for our relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them is Say It. It's a a ballad off John Coltrane, ballads record. Beautiful. And the other one is Fall by Wayne Shorter.
2: Those are very evocative and they just, wow.
3: You know. Well, For me, I think I, I was a Sting fan. So I would say like Roxanne or
2: okay.
3: Message in That's Body. a great song. Yeah, I love and, that song. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the way the bass comes in in the intro, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. To yeah. me, that was my favorite period of his bass playing, actually.
3: Yeah. When he was playing with the police. And always playing slightly behind the, the beat, which is very just, I mean, happy. amazing. Yeah. yeah, very happy.
0: If the two of you had the chance to put together an all-star jazz fusion band with members from any era, you can pick people from any era, who would be in it?
3: You mean together or separately? Together, of course.
0: <laughs> oh.
1: You're a unit. <laughs> That's an okay. impossible question. There's so many good players. Yeah.
0: No, but, so but it's a rapid fire, so you've got to be... Quick okay,
1: first play. person that comes to mind, like if you go back to fusion sort yeah. of beginning. Tony Williams on drums
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and, and or Billy Cobham or somebody like that. Or, um, for me, I would say Chick, Herbie, and Jan Hammer. Wow. Um, I would say guitar would have to be, you know, McLaughlin, Schofield is still one of my favorites. Um, and also, um, Yeah. From, like I'm going back to my roots here. Uh
2: Saxophone, Wayne. <laughs> um, Why not? Uh Michael and Randy Brecker. Uh, those
1: are some things that pop to mind you, you know quickly.
3: That that's a that's a band made in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. I can't beat that. He's mentioned everybody.
0: <laughs> oh, would you like to add add uh, a few more? Uh, yeah, you can yeah,
3: add some I- too, bro. Yeah. yeah, maybe Alan Holdsworth. Um, yeah, there you go. Benny Kalyuta. Um, yes. Triloh Zakirji. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe even Louis Banks. Uh, his son, Gino. Why not? I mean, these guys are playing great now. Um, who else? I mean, it's drawing a blank. <laughs> there's too many. There's too many. Brentford yeah, but Marcellus that's
2: already. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot. A lot. Yeah. yeah. I have one last question for you, which is a custom in all of my interviews, and I ask all
0: of my distinguished guests this very question: Down in the distant horizon,
2: what would you want to be remembered as? Wow. Ugh. Ah, um, first thing that pops in my head is a child of God.
1: Um, the second thing would be someone who, who
2: who could make people cry with the bass: I'll see. Sheldon, what about you?
3: I would have said ditto, but okay, I'll give you a different answer, but yeah, I mean for me, one is definitely uh, um, to imbibe the spirit of Christ and bring that to music. I want to bring, you know, his presence in my music, so that when people listen to it, they go home renewed feeling different you know i want them to feel like everything is forgiven and all is good and is is greatness beyond all the troubles that we are all facing and dealing with every day so the music should should revive you and make you new so i want to bring that in my music and be remembered for that and just being a great human being you know that's the main thing
1: and and unifying people yeah Yeah. unifying people like you just Hinted at there. I think that's that's important to me. It always has been. Uh, the multicultural aspect of of music and how music can unite people. Yes. Like I'll just tell you a quick story before we go. When
2: Wayne Shorter Quartet, we went down to play an Esawira okay. in Essaouira in Morocco, North Africa. So
1: at the Ganawan Music Festival, Ganawan music is very Incredible music with the Gembri and the guy in the front. So part of the festival is you you do a collaborative thing. Like you, you each play a set and then you play together. Right. So here's this guy, a Ganawan chief. He's got the he's in a in robe ceremonial robes. He's playing the Gembri, playing his butt off. It's kind of like a bass. He only has two strings, there's a gourd, and it's like so funky. But he's singing incredibly and playing the Gembri. So we 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 meet him backstage before the thing. We can't speak in the same language at all. So there's nothing we can say uh, really. And then, so we get up there and basically this was, I love this. So he starts playing, they start playing because we didn't expect them to come and play Wayne Shorter music. They have their own thing and it's very specific, right? Right. So they're playing their thing. he turned around to me and he would play me the groove and I would just play it back at him. And he would go like, yeah, okay, turn around. (laughs) sing his tail off, keep playing. The percussionists are going crazy. They're looking at Brian, and they're getting so excited by the way Brian is playing. These cats have those metal, uh, like they look like metal castanets that are welded together, and they're yeah. killing on them. Yeah. And they're looking at Brian getting so excited, the band leader looks around every once in a while, he's like, look at me, <laughs> Like you know, he was mad because they were getting so excited about Brian. <laughs> so we're playing, we are having this amazing musical conversation. Wayne and Danilo are hanging back. They don't want to come in yet. But at a certain point, they realize that he's not going to invite them in because he's got his thing and he's going, you know, and we're joining him. Right. Right. So then they came barging in at one point. It was just like a collision of these cultures. And it sounded amazing. It was crazy. Wow. And it was so great because not one word was spoken of any language, only the, the language
2: of music. Wow. Amazing. And that was incredible. We couldn't talk, but we did talk. Yeah, on a deeper level than
1: words. So I'd like to see more of that happen.
3: Yeah, isn't it true that always at a festival, uh, it's always better to just play first and talk later? You know, yeah. because and even people sometimes you know might not even realize your level till they actually hear you play. And sometimes I just believe that. Just play yeah, these first. guys they,
2: they
1: had no idea yeah. who we were. I'm exactly. sure. Exactly.
3: Yeah, we didn't know them either. But yeah,
1: man, they were killing. Right, they were amazing. Right, and I'm sure people who lived there knew who they were. Yeah, so it was it was incredible. I had some great experiences like that with also with Ali Farka Touré. We played together on this record, talking Timbuktu with Ray Cooter and Jim Keltner, and Gate Mouth Brown, the blues player from uh, from Texas. That was incredible, like a total collision of cultures. Right, that was fun. Yeah. Anyway, we could talk for hours, but I just <laughs> <Yeah. I'm not laughs> to go somewhere with my
0: wife. So okay.
3: <laughs> yeah, anyway, so that's good. Right. that sounds so, like a good plan.
0: So before we wind up, this interview will be additionally aired on Big FM Shillong and Azal in the northeastern part of India on their Sunday primetime show, and it'll also be out in YouTube uh, shortly in an in a in, in audio video format and across all major audio streaming platforms. So thank you so much, gentlemen. It's been an incredible blessing, privilege, and an honor My having pleasure. the two of you. And I hope this opens doors. I, I hope this opens doors for a potential collaboration between the two of you through this podcast.
3: 100 percent. Because okay. John won, so he's going to come. Oh, no. <laughs> everybody, <laughs> everybody wins. <laughs> yeah. But
1: the uh, yeah. the winner, the real winner, will be me if I finally get to come uh, and and eat some food in India because I'm a Major fan of that cuisine. <laughs> It. that's for sure
2: great
0: so let's stay in touch and uh, let's make some music happen in India definitely all, right. all the best Bye-bye. thank you thank bye. you for God it. bless
3: you guys take care all bless bye, bye.